You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Emswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, I'm very honored to be joined by two people, Sister Joan Brown, the Executive Director of New Mexico Interfaith Power and Light, and Clara Sims, a summer intern and a senior at Willamette University in Oregon, studying religion and history. Sister Joan and Clara, welcome. Thank you, Rabbi Neil. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Um, So, Joan, let's perhaps start with you. Maybe you can tell us a little about New Mexico Interfaith Power and Light. Yes. Uh, New Mexico Interfaith Power and Light is uh, one of 40 <clears throat> state affiliates of the national IPL. And in New Mexico, we work with people of all faith traditions, faith leaders, faith communities, and people who are uh, people of spiritual persuasion that may not even be part of any particular religious tradition. And our focus is climate change, climate justice, and helping people make that link with spirituality and how in this extremely important moment that we're in with climate change, that we need to dig deeper to deeper foundations um, to move ourselves uh, through and to address this challenge. And we do this through education, inspiration. We help faith communities do energy efficiency, solar, and public policy advocacy. And so your program today really fits more with kind of the work that we do, which is around education and uh, inspiration and getting to those deeper places. Lovely. And, and so, Clara, although it's interesting since, since Joan is talking about the involvement of the interfaith community, um, although the tone has clearly changed somewhat in the faith communities that I've seen, um, historically religion, or at least the, the main Western monotheistic religions, really don't have a very good track record when it comes to environmentalism, do they? And, and so, I, well, I wonder if you agree with that. And, and, and why do you think that is? Well, um I do agree with it in a sense. I think I would be hard-pressed to defend that um, religion and Christianity has had a good track record in regards to the environment, but I think that has to do with something fundamental about the economic model that it serves, that religion has served empire um, for thousands of years, and I think that empire um, is fundamentally built on exploitation of the earth so religion serves that economic model more than there's something fundamental about religion that um, goes against a healthy ecological relationship. So, but is, I, I look at a lot of the faith texts and I, I think in theory they're not meant to be serving empire. They're meant to be walking humbly with your God and so mm-hmm. on. So is it that religion for you, is it that religion gets abused by empire or has religion or have some religions been framed in particular ways that help them serve empire? I think both. Um, I think if you look at religion, there's always very many different levels happening simultaneously. So there's the parts that have been subsumed into being interpreted, into feeding a model that is exploitative and um, essentially props up the powerful but at the same time, you have the very countercultural forms of religion, like St. Francis, um, who was alive and speaking 
at a time when the Crusades were beginning to develop. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really a both, I think. So can, I, I guess a question for both of you, if that is correct, and I totally understand where that perspective comes from, can contemporary religions um, become more earth-centered? Can we um, remove from ourselves this um, exploitative element uh, while, while, becoming, while remaining authentic? Can we radically change our theology while still being Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and, mm -hmm. and, and everything else? Either one. What do you think? Um, so, you know, I, I believe not only can we, but we must. I mean, we're at a, a critical moment now with climate change and with other social ills that we have. And it really is deeply within all religious traditions, this deep connection with the natural world, like Clara mentioned uh, St. Francis of Assisi. And he was also making a comment about the economic system of mm -hmm. his time and what it was moving into. But then we have people like um, Thomas Aquinas, who's mm -hmm. over 700 years old. In his writing, he says, if we um, get creation wrong, we get God wrong. And there's St. Augustine, who said there really are, are two books of nature, and the primary one is the natural world, and the second is the scripture that we have. And all religious tradition traditions, I think, have those foundational kind of um, scriptures, um, ancient teachings, um, holy people um, that give us that example. And I think our eyes and our worldviews have gotten clouded by the cultures that we live in that have uh, propped up um, that which we think brings us happiness and hope in life, which may be more in the economics in that system than really what our souls long for and um, deep happiness of community, of the awe and wonder in the world that we have and um, our purpose in life. I agree <laughs> <laughs> completely. <laughs> but is it, see, you say we must, we, we must transform. But if I, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something in, in extremis. Um, if I am uh, in a, um, if I'm drowning in the sea and I think I must transform to something that swims, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's some, to something that has gills, but I can't. I, it's not possible. Are you saying it, it is possible, it's just difficult because of the, um, well, certain obstructions, perhaps the economic obstructions. And, and, and if so, can you perhaps even clarify maybe a little more what they may be? Um, yeah, well, I think it's important to not take a historically deterministic lens. Um, I think that, that Christianity could have gone a very different way and I think that um, our economic system could have gone a very different way. So mm -hmm. to me, there's absolutely no question of the ability to evolve um, because these are all human systems that we create. Um, yeah, and to, to add to that from kind of a scientific perspective, humans, we are part of nature and we are part of the evolutionary process. And the new science that uh, we keep learning more and more about of the 13.8 billion years and Hubble, Hubble just celebrated its um, anniversary just a couple days ago and incredible learnings that we're having from that. So we are part of this evolutionary process and part of that is consciousness, part of it is who we are physically. I think uh, your example of the fish, well the lungfish, they finally did, you know, get these lungs so they could be on the earth and they could 
should be in the water. Um, it, it doesn't happen instantaneously. Right. And that is the challenge because we are in a critical, critical moments right now where in the past the earth and even the human being part of that earth has had the luxury of more time to evolve. Mm. And because of the human implications uh, on the planet, we don't have that luxury right now. So let's, let's take the evolutionary model a little further. Um, I think the lungfish is a very good example. Touche. Um, <laughs> but um, let's take Stephen Jay Gould's perspective of evolution being a punctuated evolution that it happens in spurts quite quickly um, mm -hmm. as opposed to a long drawn out process. Nonetheless, it still takes generations. Um, and I think most people who are aware of the science of today would say we don't have generations to change. And so the, the challenge I would suggest for faith communities today isn't that we can slowly change over the next few generations, but in fact, the, the religion of your parents can't be the religion of your children almost. There, there must be connecting threads. But the transformation you're talking about that needs to be so dramatic and so fundamental is, is something that has to be totally radical. And, and so I don't know, I, I don't know enough about the history of religion. And you're absolutely right to say don't take a historically deterministic perspective just because it always was doesn't mean it always will be. Perhaps are there examples where you can say, right, you know what, we can engage in religious revolution almost in, in a quick way. Mm -hmm. Are there other examples that come to mind? Do you have anything? I, I do, actually. Um, but, you know, right before I say that, I just want to say that, um, you know, there's um, there's a, a gentleman, John Hout, mm -hmm. who teaches at Georgetown, who is is amazing um, theologian. And in terms of this whole evolutionary process, he looks upon it as an anticipatory universe. And he's doing this exploration now of not just the external evolution of everything, but then what is the internal impulse of evolution? And I think that's where we're talking right. about religions and their internal impulse of, of uh, evolution. Um, a quick example would be the Catholic Church, Vatican II. We had been going along oh, forever, okay. forever in this way of ritual, of prayer, of, um, you know, even, you know, not in vernacular languages. And literally almost overnight, everything shifted and people were on board because they were ready. I see nice. the emptying of many of the, um, you know, um, pews, chairs, etc. in all the religious traditions almost um, as the universe, in a sense, or the holy, in a sense, saying, you know, this is not working. This is not what you're being called into. Um, something shifting. You don't know mm -hmm. what it is, but um, the evidence is in the emptying pews and the graying of heads. And, yeah. Clara, you could speak to that. <laughs> I could. And I just also wanted to add, and I think, too, from a historical per perspective, crisis breeds creative responses. Yes. And um, and we can look at like serious crises that are actually extremely relevant, like um, the Little Ice Age mm -hmm. that happened um, in the 17th century, and and that um, the evolution I think does can happen in those fast spurts, especially when there's that kind of outside pressure. I'm I'm what, the one idea that comes to my mind hearing the two of you is um, once the temple was destroyed 
um, in 69 of the Common Era. The Romans destroyed the temple. Um, and since Judaism at that time was a sacrificial religion centered on the temple, in theory, it should have ended then in some mm -hmm. sense, because how can you continue a sacrificial religion when your place of sacrifice is destroyed? But instead, the rabbis grew to prominence around then and said, actually, the sacrifice that God wants is the sacrifice of the heart. Uh, which means prayer. So you don't need to offer animals anymore. You can just pray at the, you know, the, the three times of day traditionally when we would have offered sacrifice. And then it's off. And then it's a totally new religion. I'm, uh, I'm fascinated and not surprised in the slightest, Sister Joan, that you take the emptying out of pews and the graying of congregations as a sign of hope and change. Um, and I say that just because having known you personally, um, where most clergy would beat their breasts and say this is terrible and you know the world is becoming a darker place because people aren't interested in religion anymore you seem to be saying no people are interested in religion it's just religion needs to catch up to where the people are would that be correct right and to where the world is and to a deeper place people are asking deeper questions even if even if they're struggling to get by day by day with you know, economics of life, they're asking the deeper of questions, well, why do I have to work so hard? Why is this the case? So those old answers don't fit anymore in all kinds of ways, uh, no matter whether you're an intellectual or whether you're a, a person who's doing very, very important work that's not in an intellectual realm. And so we are being pushed, I think, maybe in this into this anticipatory universe that uh, John Hout speaks of. We're just you know, being pressed forward. And Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, um, mm -hmm. paleontologist and um, Jesuit also, um, he, he says there's no, there's no choice. That you, you, we all are being pushed in this evolutionary um, movement um, forward. We're going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to challenge this. I agree and I want to agree, but I have a challenge as well. So we're going to come back to this. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich and my guests this evening, Sister Joan Brown and Clara Sims. Welcome back to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. My guests this evening, Sister Joan Brown, the Executive Director of New Mexico Interfaith Power and Light, and Clara Sims, an intern uh, and also a senior at Willamette University in Oregon. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the whole world universe sort of pushing us, society pushing us towards this transformative point. And yet, with, with, that, with the risk of getting too political, and yet there seems to be a very strong movement the other way in society mm -hmm. as well, to hold on to that which has been. Mm -hmm. What do we do, um, either as faith individuals or as individuals with a social conscience, what do we do when we see society you know, I'd love to think that everyone was going that way, but I, I see the more we go that way, the more resistance there is to going that way of, of transformative change to the point that sometimes I feel like the change has been too fast for too many people in our society, in which case we have to slow down. But if we slow down, then we don't achieve what we want. Then despair sets in. And so what do we do with that? Um, well, I... I can't speak from an experienced faith leader perspective, but I have to believe personally that there's a better way to include those people in a conversation, um, that our political atmosphere is very, very polarized, and we've kind of, we've, we've stopped knowing how to 
talk across the aisle. And I think we need creative ways of including those people into this narrative that aren't threatening to their lifestyles. What do we do when when somebody of such a polarized opposite perspective says to us you know as sister joe mentioned before drill baby drill right what how can we bring somebody like that into a conversation when one side is saying the more we do that the more we impoverish every generation that follows after us and then the other person who says no it's fine it's good it's Mm -hmm. all you know there was something i saw recently um a, a representative saying that climate change is caused by body heat from all the people on the planet how can you bring in somebody who in, into a conversation like that who is either um, so unaware mm-hmm. that no matter no amount of education will change them or who is actually literally invested in making sure that you don't get your way? Mm-hmm. Is it possible to to bring them in? I, it's a lovely yeah. liberal idea. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think it would be extraordinarily difficult. And I don't think there are probably very many examples of that succeeding when somebody has so much power from the position they're in and they've had those views for most of their life. Um, So I guess I see it more as a generational conversation um, that Mm -hmm. it's including new voices um, and young people in more of that transformation than trying to convince people who are so entrenched already. But but I don't know if they're they would be able to be convinced. How do we, I, I so appreciate you saying that. How do we get the voices of young people to be authentically heard? Because exactly that person who said, you know, it's all caused by uh, body heat and so mm-hmm. on, was challenged. This was at a meeting where this uh, young person challenged them and said, is your resistance to this because you've received hundreds of thousands of dollars? <laughs> and their answer is, you're young, you're naive, you don't know. Yeah. How do we get the perspective of young people to to be taken seriously that's a great question um and i i don't know i think a big part of it is giving young people a platform and giving them confidence to use their voice because i see a lot of young people who have great ideas but they're they're not being heard because they're not stepping into the public sphere right thank you and 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 sister joan I, i guess my question for you is, is more about environmentalism in general, in the sense that um, you've seen the development from the first Earth Day, the, you know, the whole um, development of, of environmentalism within the um, sphere of our society over the last 40 years or so, maybe even yeah, 40 years. But it, the planet's in a worse state now than it was when the first environmental calls went out. So has environmentalism failed? Um, And if it has or has not, how do we get it to succeed? Particularly asking you that question as, you know, as somebody from New Mexico Interfaith Power and Light focusing on climate change and climate justice. After 40 years, how come we haven't changed yet? Well, I I, I would say it's more complicated than failed or not failed. Go ahead. Or, um, you know, so... If we hadn't had this whole environmental movement actually following Rachel Carson, Mm -hmm. the mother of environmentalism, and actually St. Francis of Assisi is called the patron of ecology, we would have worse air, more polluted water, um, more children who are sick, more rates of cancer and all of that. So in that sense, I don't think we can say it's failed. I think more of the big challenges with this whole climate change and our lifestyles and our extractivism 
for a certain uh, level of uh, comfort in life. And so I, and in that perspective, I wonder sometimes if we're asking too little of people maybe mm. and being not practical enough in, um, and, and forthright enough in what is needed. And I have to say as a uh, woman on a spiritual path for many, many years, all my life actually, I, I believe part of what has been missing is a, a, a spiritual foundation or a component. doesn't mean you have to be part of a religious tradition, but looking deeper at what values are, what makes us happy. Um, are we being communal? Are we caring for our brothers and sisters, whether they're next door or across the oceans? Right. What does it mean to be a human being? Mm-hmm. And I think that is the deeper question that has not really been answered. And, and we can't just um, deal with this uh, ecological challenges that we're in by um, addressing this issue or this issue or, you know, this kind of pop-up thing. So it, it has to be much deeper than that, I think. Um, so while there have been some what I call successes, we're being challenged, I think, at deep soul levels to to go deeper in this and then practical without in, outside of that. In in our last show two weeks ago, David Dennedy Frank was on the program, um, and uh, he talked about the Franciscan vows, and he said the second one was about poverty, the vow of poverty, and I found that really interesting, and I wonder if that connects with your statement that we're asking too little of people. Mm-hmm. Should we be asking I mean, people to say enough already? Um, I have enough stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we do that? How do we do that? Which particularly clashes. I mentioned this with him particularly clashes with the American dream of you can succeed. You can build mm-hmm. up when you're saying we're asking possibly too little of people, which I tend to agree with. The problem is, how do you turn around to everyone and say enough? Stop buying uh, stop stop attracting junk because then of course the economics change of the country you're in you know people start losing jobs and mm-hmm, so it, mm-hmm. it all gets very difficult so a- almost coming back to the very beginning of, of what you were saying Clara about this is all bound up with economics isn't mm-hmm, it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what do we do with that you know I think we need to have uh, some honest conversations and personal conversations for one thing and it needs to be also addressed I think from you know, the um, in houses of worship um, or faith traditions, whoever they are. A very quick story. I was campus minister a number of years ago. I was having this conversation with somebody who was a senior. And I said, well, what are you going to do when you finish with your degree? And she says, well, I really would like to go into fashion and make a lot of money. Hmm. And I said, and she said, you know, that's the American dream. And she looked at me and then she says, but maybe that's not going to make me happy. And maybe that's the American nightmare. Interesting. Yeah, and um, it reminds me of Wendell Berry has this great essay on limitlessness and how that's sort of the mythology of Mm -hmm. the American dream. So I think that the answer to your question must have to do with a cultural reframing of what success means and what happiness means Mm -hmm. Um, because I think we see limitlessness as the kind of antithesis or or limits as the antithesis Mm -hmm. of the American dream. Um, when they can actually actually be formal elaborations of meaning and and community. So who who does the cultural reframing? How do we do it? I mean, interestingly, to talk about some places of worship where there are fewer people now, where do we have that conversation and how do we have it? Again, Mm -hmm. going back to the challenge of, is this just a liberal conversation of Mm -hmm. liberals saying, you know, 
Let, let's all just chill out and not not buy as much. Mm-hmm. But but that's not really. I, I don't know how we do this. That mm-hmm. that's my biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. I think one important way is the stories we tell. We live in a culture totally saturated with media, especially young people. Um, and until we have um, stories where people who are actually living lifestyles or values that we're talking about in this conversation, I don't think people are going to pay attention. Um, and I also think it's kind of just um, people start living a different way, and that's a ripple effect. People, mm. It's a model, mm-hmm. and, and people see the benefits of that. They see how, how much that creates community and... Um, so kind of the power of example, I think. See, it's interesting to hear when you say that. It makes me think about, well, I, I go back to Genesis and Abraham travels here and then he gets loads of things, loads of cattle and crops and, and, and so on. And then he moves somewhere else and gets more. And we tell that story mm. as a way of sort of justifying, um, not justifying reward and punishment, but in a, it, I, I'd never really thought about it until you were saying that in terms of, if we think about the stories that we're telling ourselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, all the way through, um, you know, there, there are stories of people who will back away from society and who will mm-hmm. live in poverty, as David was saying a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, who who will simplify their lives. Mm-hmm. And then there are also narratives which we might even just take for granted, which we haven't thought about of, mm-hmm. of acquiring and, mm-hmm, and having mm-hmm, more mm-hmm. because we're good people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I wanted to say, too, I think that in some ways people that are leaders in various spheres are not really using their full potential and who they're called to be in life mm-hmm. and their voices and even sharing these stories or speaking. And I'm, I'm thinking in terms of like Pope Francis and just as one of many, I mean, uh, the Muslim leaders throughout the world made a huge impact with ecological mm-hmm. uh, climate change. Pope Francis, though, his Laudato Si is known by lots of people. And he said, this is, this is for everybody in the whole planet. And he is using that as a platform. And he is, he is not mincing words. Mm. He's saying, you mm. know, we're creating a wasteland. Um, the capitalist system is not working. It's putting more in poverty, disparity. And yet, for the most part, people really love him. And it's challenging them. And they're, they're seeing this as a breath of fresh air, I think. I, I would agree from what I've seen. A lot of people are. And at the same time, a lot of people are challenged. And maybe that's what we need. From my own perspective as a faith leader, there is fear. There is yeah. fear of pushing too far, right. um, of driving people away. Um, and so it, it's that it's that difficulty, I think, between being prophetic and being mm-hmm. political almost, trying to balance the needs of individuals while holding a particular moral line, I'd say. So let me let me ask a final question to you both, um, which is, it seems for me, this this is, is the ultimate question, I guess, which is about hope, which is that do you have hope for the future? And if you do, what is that hope based on? Just 30 seconds each or so <laughs> to summarize. Um, Clara, Clara, you? I do have hope. I, I think I don't know how I would live without hope, um, but my hope is rooted, I think, in my studies of history and in this sense um, as this poem that we both printed out, Beginners, that we are really just beginners. Um, There's the line, we have only begun to imagine justice and mercy. And if you look at the span of human civilization and see how radical these ideas of 
human equality are, um, that we're really struggling towards something good, but we're, we're in the middle of it. And, um, you know, I, I think the question about hope, in some ways, I hear it a lot, and I think it's too simplistic because it's sure. – um, but it, it really is about this whole sense of, of believing in a covenant, um, who we are, this call to love, and that love infuses every single thing. And um, that that moves me, and to know that there's mystery and things can happen at any moment. And uh, Claire and I printed out the same – poem, Beginners, and there's this one part that is to me speaks of hope. We have only begun to know the power that is in us if we would join our solitudes in the communion of struggle. And it, maybe that's the hope at this moment. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. This has been such a fascinating discussion for me. I really appreciate it. So thank you to Sister Joan Brown from New Mexico Interfaith Power and Light. Thank you, Rabbi Neal. And thank you to Clara Sims, um, senior at Willamette for uh, for your answers as well. Thank you. Um, hopefully you'll both be able to return to our show another time. Um, you've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.